You know, Tara, when I think about you, I just imagine a Gene Wilder slash Willy Wonka type, like running around in this, you know, crazy lab, like building crazy things that nobody can understand, but it's somehow magical. And um, so you're kind of the Willy Wonka of Angular. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of five to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. Hey, have you heard about Code School? Code School is a terrific way to learn by doing. You actually get to work through exercises on their website and learn how to build code. They have courses on Ruby, Python, .NET, iOS, Git, databases, and of course, Angular. And you can try before you buy, so they have free intro courses to things like Git, Angular, and iOS. So go check them out at codeschool.com and start learning by doing. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 117 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel we have Lucas Rubelke. Yo. John Papa. Maybe he's coming to us from Ute land. Uh, Ward Bell. I am here, present and accounted for. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, we have a special guest this week. It's uh, Taro. Let me see if I can roll my R's properly. Parvianen. Perfect. Still can't Hello, do it. thank you. Nailed it. That was pretty damn near perfect. Stuck the landing. Yep. Well, I don't even know if I'm part Finnish. I was going to claim that, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm I'm Tero. I'm a programmer um, in Helsinki, Finland. I and I work as a uh, independent contractor these days, mostly doing front end development in <coughs> various companies. And and then I do a lot of writing around the things I do. I've written a book about Angular called Build Your Own Angular JS, and I've written lots of articles and things like that. And lately, my my main interest has been uh, combining programming and music. So I've been trying to to do things with web development and and music creation at the same time. Very cool. It was your talk at NGConf that was the music and touching the screen and all that stuff, right? Yeah, I did did one of those in NGConf. That's a must-see uh, moment. I have to say, I I was almost in, oh, this is, sounds terrible, but I was almost in tears. <laughs> but, you know, I'm always reaching for the crying towel anyway. Everybody knows me as a weeper. It's so beautiful, tarot stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was almost in tears as well because I was—I had no idea what I was doing there and whether that talk was going to work, and you know. But yeah. it seemed to work out in the end. Well, and it's stuff like that that reminds us that programming should be fun, right? So, 
yeah, that was very much what I was going for there, that you can have fun and you can also learn things while you're having fun. And that's a nice way to pick up new technologies to do something fun with them. Absolutely. Well, I read this article that you wrote. Um, it was looks like it came out about two months ago as we record this about Angular 2 hot loading with NGRX Store and Webpack. And I thought it was right. really interesting because, I mean, we have the Angular CLI now that does the, you know, you make a change to your uh, TypeScript and it will reload the page. But it, when it reloads the page, it reloads the page. And so all of your right. state is gone and everything like that. And this looked like it was a little bit more forgiving and a little bit more interesting way of doing things so that when you reload, you keep your state and you have your app basically, you know, pick up where it left off. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So that's what essentially what hot loading means, being able to change your code while retaining the state you were in in your application. So, so not destroying whatever you had done before that, which is what usually happens when the page is reloaded or even when something like, something like one of these uh, library load things like browser sync reloads the app, you usually need to start from the initial state of the application when, when the code changes. Yeah, so I, I'm a little curious because, and we've talked about NGRX Store, and you also said that you can use Redux if you can plug it in. But mm -hmm. wh why do you need each piece of this? Uh, let's let's start with the NGRX Store. I mean, why is that critical to being able to maintain state when it reloads the page? Sure. So, so first of all, I don't think there's anything fundamental in, in hot loading that requires Redux or NGRX store. It's just okay. those happen to be the, the provide, provide the way we can do it or right now uh, with the tooling that we have. And the key idea there is that with, with something like NGRX store or Redux, you have your state separated from the rest of your application. So you have this one data structure somewhere in inside the store which holds all the information there is to know about what's going on in your application and then your components and your the rest, the rest of your code is essentially stateless so so you have components that don't have anything interesting inside them as state except the stuff they get in from the store or that they get in as inputs so that means that when a hot uh, code change situation happens. You can you can use the Webpack hot module replacement tool to 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 react to that. And all you need to do is uh, grab the state from inside your your Redux store or NGRX store at that moment, and then you let the application actually fully reload. So the Angular application gets destroyed, another one gets gets initialized, but then you can plug your old state back into the new application. So. And what happens immediately after that is the same UI is rendered because the UI is fully derived from the application state. And that means there doesn't need to actually be any support for hot loading in the framework itself if you kind of follow this architectural pattern. And that's why I'm able to do that today as we speak in the application I'm building, even though there isn't really any official support for, for hot loading in Angular at the moment. So I, I just want to ask one more clarifying question. I'll let... And I'll some of the other guys chime in, but so basically this is doing a hot module replacement is what you said. So it's not reloading the page and wiping out my state. It's actually building a new Angular app and then loading the state into the app from my right. Redux store, NGRX store. 
Exactly. So so we, we, we're using Webpack to kind of hook into the event that, that occurs when the code changes. And that gives us a callback function. And in that callback, we grab the state from the application that's about to get destroyed. Then we let it get destroyed. We let the new one load up. And then as it loads up, we put the state back in there. Mm. And so, uh, Taro, if we could, actually, I'd love to get your kind of take on this. So one of the reasons why I really like Redux is because you have referential transparency in your reducers, meaning that there's no hidden state that, you know, if you put, you know, something in, like an object, you're going to get a value out. And if you put that same object in, you're always going to get that same value, which I think that's really what makes you know, really time travel possible is that because, you know, the application what you see is actually separated from the state. You can just, you know, basically pull your state out and then you put it back in. And it's going to re-render the same time, the same way every single time. Like, I'd love to get your take on, you know, kind of like how time travel is, you know, even possible, you know, with reloading and, you know, basically how Redux like en- enables that with referential transparency. Right. So yeah, I was actually just listening to your episode on Redux earlier today. It was a really interesting discussion. Um, but there's something you didn't really talk about there, which is the, the called the developer tooling thing, and that I think it's a really important part of the whole Redux thing because that was essentially the reason why Redux was invented, right? Dan Amberwell was looking for ways to get these, this developer experience of, of being able to do hot loading and time travel, and that's how we ended up in Redux. That's, that's kind of where it comes from. And uh, yeah, so... So time travel, then, it's it's slightly different, I would say, from, from the hot loading thing, which is that, uh, but related to this also. But time travel means that you are able to essentially move back and forward in history in your application states. So you can kind of step back using some developer tools that are available to some state your application was in, say, five minutes ago. And then you can combine it with the hot, ro- hot loading to make some code changes and then play back your actions from before and get to kind of this alternative present where where, uh, where um, the code has changed in between, but you don't have to do those steps manually again. And the, the referential transparency comes in there uh, so because you can rely on the fact that the reducer will always... Um, return the same new state when you give it the same old state and the actions. So you can actually have these actions in memory that you can replay. And then you can rely on it to kind of get to the same point when you do that. Or you can change that history and change those actions and get to a different state. But but there is nothing going on that isn't um, either an input or an output of that reducer. So just to clarify on this point, because the whole idea of time travel or loading state from the current app into an updated app, I mean, my brain, especially with some of the other JavaScript and Ruby apps that I've built, I mean, that would get you into some funky states. And what you're telling me is that because everything derives off of the state in the NGRX store, I can't get into a weird state that's impossible to reach any other way. You certainly can. That, that's. Uh, I don't mean to say that you can't do that because you can easily kind of get to combinations that you're you otherwise can't. But what I am saying is that that that'll be always something you can actually look at and see the steps how you got there. It, there's not nothing hidden anywhere else except 
in the data structures you can actually see from your developer tools. But sure, because you can get get kind of state combinations by kind of fiddling with the developer tools, which your UI actually doesn't make possible, you can always get to a weird situation. And these are very much, I think, power tools. Like they, they, you have to kind of be comfortable with the technology you're working with to be able to use them because because of these things that might happen. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend something like this to be used by someone who's just learning Angular because you kind of have to know how data flows in Angular first before you can kind of start to mess with that too much. It, it's also important that there aren't any uh, side effects in your business, uh, you know, it's sort of in the domain in which you're talking about. For right. example, you're not charging a credit card as you go and things like that. Yeah, very much so. So, so the uh, one of the one of the key constraints with this is that your reducers need to be your functions. They need to just get uh, information and return information and and do nothing. But yeah, this 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 does get tricky when you are working with an application that does talk to a server, for example, because then all bets are off. Really, when if you have side effects, um, then you have to have the sort of development server that can kind of not charge anyone's credit card because because um, this doesn't extend to whole systems like accounting for the server as well or that's actually very rare I've never heard anyone doing that so, so step back a second and give us the 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 problem domain in which playback with alternative outcomes is is a requirement of your system sure so so for example if I'm working on some list of information where I can add items, remove items, and edit items. I might, you know, do all those steps manually in my application once to add a couple of items and make some edits. But then if if I'm not happy with how that code is working out, I can actually go and change my code, have it hardly reloaded into the page, and then replay all those past actions of adding the items, editing the items from before without having to kind of manually do that again. And um, and then I can see how those actions apply to my new version of my application. So that's essentially automation that I'm doing there. I'm, I'm kind of bypassing the need to manually repeat these steps all over again. And there are kind of many ways you can kind of uh, use these tools because you have the whole freedom to kind of say, skip actions in, in, in the past. So one one other use case would be to see how the application would behave if I had skipped adding some particular item in the list five minutes ago, for example, but everything else would be the same. So I can quickly test different scenarios in, in, in what might happen in my application without having to always do that manually using the UI itself. Even to that is some additional like use cases for that is um, even like uh, one so like automated testing for like Q and A so basically um, you can run a series of actions you know through like a test suite you know pretty quickly and test that um, mm-hmm. as well as even like remote debugging where you know somebody you know like if you're throwing a bug in your application well by you know kind of preserving like that that action stack if you will. Then you know you can basically pick that up and then basically replay the actions that the user took to get themselves into kind of that erroneous state. And so one being able to replay actions and automate that, but as well as like recreate um, specific actions that essentially you know through an error caused a, a problem 
in your UI is, you know, that's really, really helpful to be able to, to kind of t- travel back in time and replay those things in terms of automating or testing. Yeah, definitely. So you can, you can essentially, if, if you have a system set up where your automated exception reporting includes, for example, the actions that the user took, when, you, when they got that error, you can reproduce that problem exactly on your local development environment. And you don't have to rely on the, say, the user's description of the problem necessarily because you, you have everything you need to reproduce that. And even now that I'm thinking about it, um, even like a complex like multi-step form, so let's say you have like, for instance, five steps in the form and you're on like step four, you realize like, oh, I need to go back and change something on step two. You can actually like back up, make a change and then step back forward and still kind of maintain like that state. So anytime I think you're doing like data changes like over time, using time travel and having, you know, kind of that, that separation allows you to do some really interesting things of like I'm going back in time, I need to change one thing and then I need to go back forward in time and preserve all the existing state. Yep, yep. So one thing that I'm wondering about, because you mentioned uh, backends and side effects, and I was going to say most, but I really mean all of the Angular apps that I'm writing have a backend and are going to have the side effect of writing to the backend and talking to the backend. So is this strictly for testing and debugging front-end with front-end state? Or you know, is it something that I can run with a backend hooked up and, you know, generally, you know, if my app stays in sync between the store and the back end, I'm okay. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a bit, well, depends on the situation a bit. It is definitely harder when you have a, a live UI that's actually talking to a real back end because you have you, you, these side effects going on. And if they're not item potent in your system, they might fail the next time you try them. So this this does only apply to things that you can either repeat safely, uh, which many operations are, so say updates or, or things like that, but, but it's not always the case. And you either need to kind of have, if you want to use this during normal development and not just testing, you need to basically write, write something for that to, to essentially... Uh, isolate your front from your back end in, in that sense. But Shark it is I'll definitely no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean it, you know, uh, unless the back as as Tara says, unless everything you're doing in the back end is item potent, uh, this is not gonna work. But uh, uh, if it and if it is, if your whole system is designed that way, um, or then that's a different story. But I wouldn't do this yep. with like uh, book orders or you know any of the classic right. problems. Sure. So yeah, it, it definitely works better for some apps than others. So I'm I'm what I've been lately doing is is say a, a kind of music creation app, and that's purely a front end app. It's not. It's kind of different in in, its, in that it's not a business application that talks to a database. And there, this stuff is just really breezy because I can just you know do things. Uh, in the browser without uh, worrying about the rest of the world. And there it is really easy to do. And it's great for all kinds of what-if scenarios, which might actually have also business implications as well. So, for example, if you wanted to do uh, load a, a series of trades and see what would have happened to those trades, 
in the face of uh, other pricing information that you might have, you know, you can sort of replay what if scenarios, what might happen to my investments over time if I went left versus I went right, um, that kind of thing. You know, there's plenty of places where what Tara was talking about are uh, applicable outside of the realm of musical creation. Not nearly as important as musical creation, but they are there. <laughs> that is very true. But yeah, so basic data entry applications, that, that is a lot less helpful, this stuff, because it is usually so tightly integrated with some backend that usually isn't constructed in a way that makes it safe to do this. But hot loading is still, I mean, time travel is one thing, but hot loading is much more widely applicable. The fact that you can just change your code uh, and have it applied to your application while it's running, that doesn't have any of these limitations that time travel has. And hot loading is really the part that I use much more than the time travel stuff. Like hot loading is something I do all the time, whereas time, the time travel and the messing with the history is something I do, you know, maybe a couple of times a week or something. It's much less frequent. I guess so that what makes are you, sense what are you, because you load your current application in over the top of the, the current state and it doesn't matter how you got there. Exactly. Your so it doesn't pretty much just does its thing. Exactly. Yeah. So what what's the unit of which you were uh, overloading, and how do you get rid of the old one on the fly? I, I'm I'm I, I didn't quite follow that part. You mean the old application? Yeah. So I mean, in other words, like we are we're all familiar. With, you know, we got an Angular app. We got a bunch. You know, it's all composed of modules and blah uh -huh. blah blah blah. And so there's something that triggers uh, the client to say, "Oh, I I hear there's a new module in town." Yeah. Uh, how do I get rid of the old one and bring the new one in? Um, uh, how do I even clobber the old one? Bibbity bobbity boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the short answer, but I can give you the long one. Um, the, the all begins with Webpack. So Webpack tells you there's been a code change, and then you can signal back to Webpack, okay, I can handle this. So you can say, I accept this hot load, and I'll take care of the rest. And what you do then is you have a reference in your, say, main entry point file in your Angular application to your ng module ref object. So that's the thing that we, since RC6 or whatever, since this is what we bootstrap. And it has a method on it called destroy, which uh, destroys the whole application, all, all the services in it, all the components in it, pulls, pulls it out of the page. And that basically cleans up the old application as long as you you don't have like your own code in there, that's ah. Uh, so it's not grant. It's not granular at the level of an individual module. You're whacking the no. whole application. Exactly, and that's why with the current tooling, we have to do this with something like Redux because we can't do it on individual components or anything else like that. We have to. We I am always restarting the whole application, but from from the fact that. All the state is in the store, and I can keep that. It follows that I don't really notice that because for the new application, the same state uh, results in the same UI state on the screen. So it is a bit like smoke and mirrors here. It, it's not really hot loading. It's just effectively hot loading. It looks like hot loading. But, it's a little uh, like I jump out of the car I'm driving and jump into a brand new car, not like, oh, pretty I much. take off the... I don't take off the front wheel on the put a new wheel. Pretty on. much, yeah. And the good thing about that is, is that it works right now. It works pretty well. And and the bad bad part is that it's not that fast. It's it, it takes some time to actually for Webpack and TypeScript to kind of bundle up the new application and then for it to kind of load in the browser. The feedback loops aren't as fast as 
as they could be. And, and I hope that tooling here can improve because I don't see any reason for uh, why we couldn't have things like component level uh, reloading because that's something they have in React already, for example. So what they have here, there are tools that that wrap your individual UI components and can handle the Webpack module replacement on that level by essentially replacing that component object instance on the fly and sticking the old state back into that. Um, so that's something that probably is possible to do and it would be a lot faster and, and work even if you don't use something like Redux necessarily. But it's not something that exists today. It's something that needs to be done by someone. And I hope maybe some listener will pick up on that. So why, it just curiously, how is this different from my just pressing F5 on the browser or having it reload for me? So the difference is that if you have, say, done some actions on the applications, clicked on some buttons, maybe maybe entered some data into some forms, which is state inside variables inside the application. So in this case, essentially state changes in your Redux store. You don't lose that in this case, which you do uh, when, when you just refresh the page. So, so if you're working on some part of the application that requires, say, five clicks or something to get to, you don't have to do that every time because you're already in that part of the application with that state as you were in earlier. And that's, okay. that, that ends up kind of being a big deal when you have to try a hundred different things to get, get it right. Uh, so I missed the part at which you were somehow taking the state that you've accumulated, the events that led to the state of the, the Redux state or, or, right. and squirreled it away somewhere. Where did, did you squirrel it away somewhere that I... So, so Webpack, w with its hot module replacement, has this kind of magical uh, store or this kind of object into which you can tuck things and then you can get them back on the next version of the application. So you have a place to put them. Ah, so you serialize the, the store state somewhere, then do the swap, then play it back, and then we're back in business? Is that how Exactly. That so technically, I don't, there's no serialization going on. It's just a live object because it's an immutable JavaScript data structure that's in the store. We can just keep that there as a value and just mm. use the same one because we're not having to kind of put it on, on a disk somewhere or anything like that. It's just a live object. And like that's that's what it, what makes it so easy with Redux. There's just that's just this one thing, this one essentially one variable inside the store that we need to keep. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You can do this in Breeze, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, after our Breeze great. episode, it sounded like yeah. it works in a similar enough way to yeah. You could. You, yeah. But that's only persistent state. Let me let me let me, let me be clear. Uh, that's uh, breeze is for persisted state. It's not for entire application state. And so one of the things um, that Tara was talking about is he, he, you know, I mean, the, the, and part of the Redux paradigm is everything, whether it's application state or persisted state, is uh, at least theoretically maintainable in the store and therefore can be restored. And that includes whatever I was looking at last, uh, you know, um, uh, all, all kinds of things about the application that aren't normally tucked away in a database and passed around to some other user. Yeah, that's right. So tell me what your workflow looks like when you're working on an application running this kind of a setup. So 
what I usually do is, well, I, well, the application I'm working on right now is this kind of generative music application that, that well, makes music in the browser. So I fire it up uh, using the Webpack development server, and then I essentially start coding. And I'm usually working on either, well, I might be working on the, how the actual logic of the application works or how the visualization around it works or what it actually sounds like. But what I do is I, well, the short way to express it is I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time, so I try a hundred different things to find one good 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 idea. That's what you usually do when you're working with with uh, visuals or music or stuff like that. So what I do is I try one thing, then I let the that kind of change get picked up by by my my uh, setup with the webpack hot loading, and then I see what happens with that, and and. The reason it's the hot loading stuff is important here is that I might be like 15 minutes into some piece of music that the that the application is generating, and if I would have to kind of start from the beginning each time, it would just not work. So I can I can just kind of do things in place in the context that I am in at any given time. But what I do is I try you know whether making this or that sound louder works or quieter or changing a color somewhere, all these kind of little things, I test them in, in rapid succession so that I can find this stuff that I actually like. So so essentially with my what I'm doing, this kind of hot loading stuff is really pronounced because you really need to test things before you know what works and what doesn't. But but to some extent, I think that also applies to any application development, right? Because you you have to be able to try whether this form layout or that form layout is better. And you, you kind of have all these ideas that most of the time you don't know if they're good or not. But if they're cheap to test, you can test more of them. And, and you can spend more time kind of finding the ones that actually work. So what's the bigger music contest here? I mean, we're talking about it as sort of like music out in the abstract. Like, how does this fit into your bigger picture? I mean, I, I'm dying to know. Well, Well, I'm actually... Currently preparing for a conference talk I'm doing at NG Europe next week, which is about this. And well, I am taking this uh, piece of 1960s uh, minimalist classical music by Terry Riley called NC, and making it run in the browser because it has in that piece of music, in that score, embedded into it a kind of generative system where it can generate a different score actually every time it's played. And every time an, an orchestra plays it, it comes out with a different piece of music. So what I'm trying to do is explore that idea by generating music based on that score inside the web browser. And while doing that, figuring out what the whole idea in that score is and, and, and learning a whole lot about you know how to make noises in browsers and things like that. So I'm I'm just essentially playing with with things, and with Angular and with RxJS and with Web Audio. And you're in some sense acting as the composer by adding new programmatic elements. Um, well, more like an arranger. So I choose the instruments that are played and and, and so on. So, but the the score itself is the original one, really. Uh, right, right. What, what makes it interesting is that the score works in a way that. It is different each for each performance because players have a uh, freedom to choose how fast they go go through the, the piece. So they get you get different layers of different instruments every time it's played, and 
and it's this kind of whole whole landscape of music really and you take a different path through it every time and that's just something that's really interesting to me and as a programmer i'm kind of software is the way i i try to uh, explore these things it's really an extension of of what i was doing with uh, my ng conf talk where i'm just you know playing and learning these technologies by using these kinds of projects as as the medium for that and you had visualizations uh, that go with this, I assume. So things are appearing yeah. and disappearing as you're as you're playing. So you must be using a lot of um, uh, the RxJS library as part of this game, uh, using observables to drive this. Are you seeing this as a series of events that you're managing through the course of it? Exactly. So, so of course, music is is something that takes place over time. And uh, for that, RxJS is perfect, right? Because it's about modeling things that happen over time. So what I'm doing is I'm, I have one observable that that generates these sort of rhythm events at a steady interval, and then those are generating actions that are then dispatched into my Redux or NgRx store, and the reducer in there then decides what music should be played, but based on this. So it's very much kind of using both both RxJS and and the NGRX stuff to, to make this makes this whole thing work. And then I'm using the NGRX effects library as well to to actually produce some of those side effects. So so that there's an actually an NGRX effect observable that is reacting to these actions and actually plays the music using web audio. So I'm, I'm combining a lot of these these things around this NGRX family of of technologies to do this thing. So where are the code demos? Because my brain just like totally. Like, uh, this is all on GitHub, actually. It's uh, yes. it's a repository called in C, in in dash C under my my profile. So it's it's yeah, it's an Angular app. You can just clone and, and run it. Did you say NSync? I uh, know I did not say NSync. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tara is starting a boy band. Yeah, that's that's my next project. Yes, he's, he's got such a baby face. Like, why not? <laughs> Well, you are just have, going to have to uh, put the link in the show notes because um, yeah, I'm dying to, to see this. In fact, I didn't understand hardly anything you said, to be honest. You've lost me at like <laughs> layers of orchestral music from minimalist 60s, like hippie. Well, I'm thinking Philip Glass, man. I'm thinking. Well, it's Einstein very much from the same same world. So it's it's this minimalist from the 60s, Philip Glass, Steve Reich, and Tim Riley. Oh. So and this piece is. Or did you slow dance at like prom, like to this stuff? Absolutely. You know, nothing <laughs> sets the mood like Einstein on the beach. Yep. Right. Yeah. Very much. That is so such seductive music. So I, I have. I, I am wondering. Um, you know, you've mentioned uh, Webpack and Angular Webpack, and, and uh -huh. you know, how you hook all this stuff in. Um, is this just on top of what you get out of the Angular CLI, or do you usually build this up some other way? Um. So I'm not, I haven't actually used the CLI, CLI much, and I'm not using it for this project. This kind of I started it before the CLI switched to Webpack in the summer, so so that's why I'm not using it here. But as I understand it, and and I think Ward will correct me if I'm wrong, but but it's you can you still have your kind of Webpack configuration in there, and you can change it right. So so you can plug in this this hot loading if you want to, also with CLI projects. 
And then that the, will be possible in the future. The the uh, the the initial versions of um, of the uh, 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 God, what is it? I suddenly spaced. What were the, the CLI? CLI? Thank you. Uh, uh, <laughs> hey, I've been out. Um, uh, will be somewhat inflexible in terms of the uh, configure the ability to configure the webpack thing, but it is it is uh, uh, shortly thereafter that that will be opened up because it's important. People want to be able to configure their own webpack. Right. Yeah, Ward goes on vacation, comes back. What are we talking about? jQuery? <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought I can't. Uh, you know, I was going to say jQuery, and I knew there was something wrong with that. <laughs> jQuery and NSYNC. There we go. Uh, the other oh, yeah, question so, I have is, uh, with Redux, you've mentioned Redux. Instead of NGRX, is there a way to pull that hmm. in instead of NGRX and make this still hot load the same way? Yes, I, I believe so. I, I haven't used Redux with Angular 2 yet because I've, I've been using NGRX, but those two are, in this sense at least, so close to each other that I don't see how you couldn't do it because they they essentially both implement the exact same pattern and you can get the state out of both of them you can plug it back into both of them so all the pieces are there so anyone who's using redux should be able to do the same thing just as easily did you have to become an observable guru to to pull this off did you have to learn like all 60 different operators or were you able to to find a set that are helpful to you as you're trying to manage these uh, uh, event streams. And then, of course, the following question is, like, what is that set? What what must an Angular 2 developer master in order to be able to cope with the kinds of streams you're dealing with? Right, so that's an interesting question. I actually did not have to use a whole lot from RxJS to be able to do this. So uh, there's maybe a handful of operators, like under 10 at least, that I'm using. Um, and uh, most of them are things that are not the most esoteric ones. They're like map and and uh, select from, from NGRX and, and filter and things like that. And that's because actually with something like this, with NGRX, most of your application logic or the kind of complex business logic, or in this case, the music generation logic that you have, is going to be actually in your reducer. And in that level, there's no observables involved. Those are just pure functions that take in data and return data. And they're synchronous, and there's nothing you have to do with observables there. And that's where you actually make all the kind of difficult decisions about what that application actually does. And RxJS is just used for the plumbing of, of getting, say, then the state from the store to the UI and getting it from the store to the audio player and kind of on those edges. But for most of the logic, it's RxJS or observables don't actually uh, uh, come into the picture at all. Well, that's kind of consistent with what Ben Lash is telling us about that. That although it's a rich toolkit, most everybody can get where they need to get with a set of about, as you say, about ten operators. So that's yeah. even when somebody wants to do something as interesting as what you're striving for, um, it's within our reach. Yeah, and though I did actually begin doing this, as I, I tried to kind of model the whole thing as an observable event stream, um, but. Then at some point, <laughs> forgive me. I, just I started, have to laugh. <laughs> I started thinking, why am I doing this? It's way too difficult. Like I, I 
was in, deep in the RxJS documentation all the time and trying to figure out whether it's flat map or flat map playlist or whatever that I need in this particular case. But then I realized I don't actually need to do all that stuff because most of these decisions I'm making could be made as pure functions with pure data. And it's only at the edges that I need RxJS. And this actually, yeah, again, is pretty much consistent with I later heard Ben Lesh say, I don't know if it was Angular Connect or one of these conferences lately where he said that, yeah, you don't actually need need to use RxJS for everything. You just need yeah. it for, for, for the async stuff and the rest, you know, is perfectly fine to not use it. That was exactly what he said as, as he was sort of updating his his thing from the year earlier, which had been, the theme had been uh, RxJS all things, and now it's sort of like, no, no, right. no. <laughs> Uh, Even um, Padawowski, like he said, he made a tweet where he said, like, look, like you don't have to use like observables for like all the things. Like, there's a place for it, and he certainly does not. So I think you know, definitely, it's important to make that clear uh, distinction, you know, between like this is a good fit and this is, you know, this is not a good use case. Even, and I talked about this at Angular Connect. Is I think really what people run into is they look at, you know, the 10,000 RxJS operators and they just get, like, super overwhelmed. Like, mm-hmm. when I started, I'm in the docs, I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Like, this, I'm so confused. But when you set aside those operators and you actually really focus on understanding the shape of the, the stream itself, that like, the observable, the basic observable shape or the sequence of you have your initial output, which is, like, some event, and your final input, which is essentially your subscribe block, and then you realize, like, okay, this is actually the nature of the stream, the shape of the stream. From there, you can just put in kind of the basic operators that you need, which I think are really, like everyone has said, is you know really like ten you know, kind of main um, operators that you'll just use a lot. Like I think map is like, like one of the most fundamental ones, but then you know scan to preserve state within the stream, mm-hmm. uh, switch map if you need to essentially switch from one stream to another, uh, merge if you need to combine streams. And um, you know, filter is a good one, but you know, those are kind of like the five, six that I just use a lot. And I think a lot of people just, they don't understand the actual shape and the nature of the stream, and then they get confused in the operators. Yeah, I very much agree. And, and this was actually going to be my pick, but I'm going to just say it now that on the RxJS website, they have this perfect tool for dealing with this issue. When you start by thinking of your problem, as Lucas just explained, by thinking of what do I have right now and what do I need to have. You know, it, it has this kind of selector, this kind of choose your own adventure selector for step by step taking you to the place where it actually tells you what operator you need. So it says, I have one observable and I need another kind of observable. And and it, you can kind of very easily find the operator that way. And I use it all the time because that's the only way I know how to kind of figure out what what operators I need. Well, I think there's a missed opportunity here. Um, I don't know how many of you remember the Gang of Four Design Patterns book, mm-hmm. um, which um, uh, is something, you know, swept through. Um, but somebody, somebody brilliant, I wrote a Hello World that used every single pattern in the book. And I think it's time. It's time for an observable, you know, some, somebody to write the Hello World that uses absolutely every single operator. And Lucas, I think you're the man to do it. Well, I'm, I'm thinking how that would work. And I'm especially thinking, like, how would I do that with the iterator and the observer pattern? Because that is basically the observable. But um, that is that's definitely 
I'll put that's some cycles ch- into it. That's your challenge, buddy. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll see what I can come up with. Taro, I need to talk to you after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's collaborate on this. Yeah. Your mission, should you choose to accept it? Yeah. I think it would be a stitch. I think that would get my program of the year award. <laughs> I've actually had a long, long time. I had a plan to to use to do a web page which uses like all the popular frameworks on the same page, but I haven't gone around. It yet. <laughs> There's another good one. Now you're including MooTools in that, right? Of course, yeah. Naturally, that's, kind of the, first that's one. the only possible answer to which framework should I use? All of them. All of them. Yes. <laughs> including Flex and Silverlight and everything. Yeah. This has been really fun, uh, but let's get to some picks. Lucas, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So I have uh, one pick and one plug. Uh, so my pick this week is I was watching uh, Carmen's talk at Angular Connect on a kind of machine learning and neural networks, and it was phenomenal. I can only imagine how much work she put into that uh that presentation she did just a phenomenal job and it really kind of sparked my interest on kind of neural networks and machine learning so she gets a thousand high fives from me for just putting on just a phenomenal talk and uh then a little bit of a plug as of today when this is being recorded um i just actually released a free rxjs course on ultimate angular so it's kind of an expansion of my talk that i gave at angular connect but it's about um, it's eight screencast, and there's some exercises that you can walk through um, for observables, and it's it's totally free. And uh, so I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, feel free to go in and um, and check it out. And I'd love to hear what you think about it. Ward, what are your picks? I'm trying to find the link to the Hello World with um, that uses every design pattern, and I'm going to find it because that's going to be my pick as soon as I find it. Nice. We'll we'll get that link in there for folks then. Um, I'm going to chime in with a couple of picks. Um, the first one is, um, and I, I'm pretty sure I picked this last week, but um, anyway, I've just really been into this book, and I'm going to mention it again and just talk through some of the stuff that's going on, but it's called The 12-Week Year, and it's a, basically a, a book that gets you to uh, focus and buckle down and make some plans uh, focused around 12 weeks instead of a year. Um, and part of the premise of the book is that you, a lot of people plan for a year, so they do annualized planning. And the problem is, is that a year out is a lot of times too far to really focus on what you need to now. So you get to the end of January and you're like, oh, well, I still have 11 months. I'm a little behind, but I'll get there. Um, and then, you know, same thing in March, you know, I'm still a little behind, but, um, you know, Another nine months, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good, I'll get there. But if you focus on those 12 weeks or basically three months, then you can sit down and say, this is what I need to accomplish in these 12 weeks. You can make a plan for what you have to get done each week and then you can accomplish your goals. And uh, there's a whole system behind it and I am really, really digging it. So I'm definitely going to continue with it. Um, I'm working on pulling together a group that does weekly accountability meetings and all of the other stuff mentioned in the book, but I'm really, really liking it. And then um, the other things that I'll mention really quickly are, uh, one, by the time this episode goes out, I should have the website up for JS Remote Conf next year. So if you want to go to the big JavaScript conference I put on every year online, 
um, go check that out. The call for proposals will be open. Um, I'm doing early bird and I might do extra early bird tickets. Um, we'll just kind of see where that lands. Um, but yeah, I'm working on that and I'm working on a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you want to know what's going on there, then check that out. And uh, I'm also going to start posting stuff to the blog on devchat.tv. So also keep an eye out for that. Taro, do you have some picks for us? Sure. So I have two picks. One is the um, RxJS Choose Your Own Adventure Operator picker that I just uh, uh, mentioned. That's on the RxJS website, which lets you find the operator you need you know, in an easy and quick way. And the other pick is a, is a talk uh, that's been out for, for a few years uh, by Brett Victor called Inventing on Principle, uh, which is available online. So, so this is kind of the talk that inspired a lot of the, the hot loading and all these kind of developer tools uh, when it came out, because it's, it's all about finding this connection to the work that you're doing and, and being able to kind of have a conversation with the application that you're building. That's a so, classic. That's a, a plus a thousand for that talk. It's a really good talk, and it's it's not just about these tools. It's just more like the underlying principles be, be behind them. But it's it's a really good kind of um, motivation for why you actually want to have tools like this. Ward, did you find your uh, hello world? I think I have. I'm pasting it in, or pasting a couple examples in. I think I'm I'm, I'm thrilled to say it's out there. All right, sounds good. And then um, one last thing, Lucas, you and Todd Motto pulled together some Angular stuff. Do you want to talk about that real quick? In what context? We've pulled together a lot of Angular stuff. Didn't you pull together a course? Yeah, so, well, uh, Todd Motto and I have uh, joined forces uh, for Ultimate Angular. And um, so we pulled over his Angular 1 courses, which are fantastic. And we're currently shooting um, an Angular 1 performance course as well as um, an Angular 2 course. But then this is also where I just launched this uh, free Hello RxJS course. And so the idea is that, you know, we'll have kind of some main courses, but then uh, we have plans to just put as much you know, valuable free content um, as we can on the platform as well. So this is pretty much what Todd and I have been doing pretty much nonstop uh, for the last six weeks. And um, so this Hello RxJS course was uh, the first one to actually uh, be released on this platform. So you can find out more at ultimateangular.com. Well, I think that's everything. If you want talks or if you want to see the talks for Angular Remote Conf, you can still get them. Um, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I forgot to mention that. But we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch you all next week. <laughs>